Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us to come apart from our week, to come apart from the cares, from the enjoyments, from the noise of the week around us, and come to this oasis, this place of nourishment and healing, refreshment for the journey. Uh, Use us in this time to be encouraged and to encourage one another. In Christ's name, amen. You can head out for your classes. I'm going to be beginning a brand new series uh, for the Sunday school uh, period. And we're going to just kind of touch on it today. I'm not sure that I'm going to develop it as thoroughly as I would like to because I'm not ready yet. Uh, But I want our thoughts to be centered around Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Luke 14, 25 to 33. So, let's begin by someone reading that out loud for us. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Okay, so that, that's the passage that I want to focus on over the next few weeks. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now, if you've got a uh, Bible that has uh, headings in your section, uh, what is the heading that is there that carves out that section of Scripture? Cost of discipleship. Does anybody have something different? Okay. We'll stick with that. Cost of discipleship. Now, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. We all agree? He said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill God's law. What is the fifth commandment? 
Honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you, that you may live long in the land. Uh, honor your father and mother. So Luke 14, what does Jesus say? How does he open this passage? Specifically with regards to fathers and mothers. If you don't hate your father and mother. So tell me how it is that we can reconcile. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. God's law says honor your father and your mother. Jesus says if you do not hate father and mother then you can't be my disciple. How do we reconcile these two things? And I think that's exactly right. I think that's the perfect reconciliation of these two things. The fifth commandment is absolutely in force. It's part of God's eternal law. And so in what way are we called to this antagonistic relationship? This, this, this antagonism that is so strong that Jesus uses the word hate to it. And the way that we reconcile these two things is, as Ms. Vividelli suggested, my arrows are going in the wrong direction, but Sorry? Right. Right. If your if your father and mother are hating God and and so I think when we come so so part of our um, challenge with these verses is if we approach them from an American individualistic mindset. Because from an American individualistic mindset, I have no problem saying, yeah, my mom and dad, my brothers and my sisters, you know, they're all, my, the, the things that are important to me are wife and children or, or even just let's be purely narcissistic and, uh, it's just me and Jesus and I hope my kids turn out well, I hope they love the Lord, but at the end of the day, it's me and Jesus. That's all that really matters. That's not at all what Jesus is getting at here. He is not promoting an American individualism. What he's doing is he's acknowledging the various social pressures that will hold you back from that complete commitment to him that he demands. If you do not have that complete commitment to him. So, for example, if your mother and father are saying your responsibility to us as our child or son-in-law, daughter-in-law, your responsibility to us is more important than your responsibility to the church, than your responsibility to Christ. Uh, 
And, you know, does that ever happen? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and something as mild as if your family comes from a different religious tradition regarding the scriptures, uh, and you decide that you believe that this is the most faithful expression of scriptural obedience is this particular way. Uh, you can call it the Reformed faith. You can call it Presbyterianism. You can call it the OPC, whatever you want to call it. But this label <laughs> is what you believe is most faithful to the scriptures. And your parents disagree. Uh, it causes awkwardness. It causes some challenges. Uh, and Jesus not only uses this language of mother and father, but he goes on, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and your own life. So every one of our relationships, So, this passage is one that has been considered a lot because it's a pretty strong passage, right? Don't think I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. If anybody doesn't hate their mother and father, if anybody doesn't hate their wife and children, if anybody doesn't hate their brothers and sisters, they are not worthy to be my disciple. Yes, I agree. Well, I'm not challenging them. I'm trying to explore them. Because I want to know how does that hatred look? How does, what, what are some of the, what are some of the things that, that pull us back from that level of commitment? And what do, what does a life look like that is so committed that the person would say their passion for Christ Jesus, their passion for being his disciple, is so strong that it looks like they don't even, you know, they're, they're not taking into consideration whether their parents approve, whether their wife and children approve, whether their brothers and sisters approve. What does a life look like that is that sold out? And when Jesus says, this is the cost, and he says, what, 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 is, what is the example of bearing the cost? If anyone does not take up, take up his cross. So, there, there, this is strong images that Jesus is using. And I want us to explore that a little bit. 
What is it to take up the cross? What is the cross that we are required to take up? What is it that this life of sold out passion, this life of sold out obedience, that is essential to the Christian life? What does it look like? And, and, and as I said, I'm, I'm bringing this as an introduction because I want to see what it's going to look like in our marriages. I want to see what it's going to look like in our personal holiness. I want to see what it's going to look like in child rearing and, and things like that in, in the coming weeks as we explore what God's word says about this sold out commitment. Yeah, that's, uh, thank God for, for Sunday school teachers who can put it in clear language that a child can grasp. Uh, and, and yet this is at the heart. I mean, one of the, one of the challenges, uh, that, that I've had on the mission field is when a person converts to Christianity, they're often leaving behind a very important support community. It may be family, it may be, you know, established uh, Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism that they've just been formally members of, and now they're being called to a personal walk with Jesus Christ. And it's hard. They have to, they have to turn their back. They have to expect a lot of opposition from their support network. But the same, I think, is true here, uh, and, and certainly I think this is one of the challenges for our covenant youth, our young people that, that grow up in Christian churches hearing the gospel and being involved in, in faithful parenting and family worship and all of that. That's all well and good, and praise God for it, but do you love Jesus more <laughs> than you do uh, mother and father and wife and children and sister and brother. Uh, are you willing to give up everything? Uh, and, and that is one of the challenges that our, uh, covenant youth, particularly, uh, that, that's a, that's a challenge that often covenant youth don't make that transition. They've always viewed it as I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl, this is mom and dad's thing. I'm just going along to get along. And then all of a sudden, boom, they emerge from their cocoon. And it may be in high school. It may be in college. It may be later when they're out on their own and working a nine-to-five job. But whatever that is, all of a sudden, they emerge butterfly tender into this and <laughs> get chewed up and spit out. Because it's always just been, well, that's what mom and dad said, I guess. And if, if we don't have this passage, if we don't have this mindset, uh, it brings a lot of destruction.
Jeremy, did you? Oh, it's so awkward around family. <laughs> he became a gringo. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and as you were describing that, uh, you know, I, I was thinking this, this conflict that, that, Christ introduces uh, into the disciples' life. How important it is. It's interesting if you'll notice in the passage that we're looking at, the, the passage itself is nine verses, verse 25 to 33. Five of those nine verses, so just over half of the passage, is really focused on just the metaphor. Who would build a tower and not sit down and count the cost before he builds a tower? Or who would go to war and not decide if his 10,000 can defeat the 20,000? The majority of this passage is focused really, in terms of content, it's focused on the metaphor for why it's so important that you count the cost. And so let me give another example of where I think we can all agree this is a serious problem. And that is when we present the gospel. Often, what is presented, either intentionally or unintentionally, is Jesus loves you so much, he died for you, won't you accept him into your heart, 
won't you please, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And he says, if anyone will open the door, I will come in and I will sup with him and I will be his friend. And that's what Jesus is doing to you, the unbeliever. Would you please open your door? All you have to do is bow your head. You have to say, dear Jesus, please be my Lord and please be my Savior. Now, would we agree that that is the most accurate, clear presentation of the gospel? It doesn't take into account the issue of sin. It doesn't take into account the issue of God's wrath and curse coming down upon you. It doesn't take into account the idea that you and I stand rightly condemned before a holy God and you must flee from the wrath that is to come. Now, I'm not saying we have to get every single word right and make sure that we, you know, cross every T and dot every I. But when someone comes to Jesus through a message that says how wonderful that individual is, when all of a sudden Jesus starts handing them things that aren't so wonderful, like cancer, or like a financial catastrophe, or just like life in general, <laughs> just not going your way, then they become, or can become, very disaffected with Jesus Christ. They can become very upset with God. And say, listen, or, or the person who gave them the gospel presentation. Listen, you told me Jesus was going to heal all my sickness. You told me Jesus was going to solve all my problems. You told me that my being an awkward single man or an awkward single woman was magically going to go away and disappear because we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus now. And you told me it was all going to be better. And Jesus says, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. No, I mean, the verse itself is beautiful. The verse itself is beautiful. It promises... Intimacy, it promises relationship. Uh, and there's nothing wrong, of course, with that verse. It's inspired by God. My point is that when people are drawn by a gospel that does not cost them anything, then when the faith
Oh, that's right. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not meaning to disparage the verse. I'm not meaning to disparage anybody using the verse. What I'm meaning to point out is that a presentation of the gospel that does not emphasize this is going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your relationship with your parents. It's going to cost you your relationship with your wife and children. It's going to cost you your relationship with your brothers and sisters. It's going to cost you your very life. Any presentation of the gospel that... Well, that's right. Well, so that's a good point. You don't know that when you first come to Christ, what the cost will be. And you're right. I mean, Peter, you think of Peter saying, Lord, I will gladly follow you wherever you go. And and Jesus says, you know what, Peter? There's going to come a day when someone will take you by the hand and will lead you to a place you wouldn't want to go. Uh, but you just keep following me. But we've got to start with that commitment that I belong to him. I am placing my life in his hand. I'm placing everything in his hand. Um, and, and so just to wrap this up, I just want to wrap up this with this thought. Um, I believe that as the church, I believe as Sterling Presbyterian Church, I believe as Christianity in general, I believe as the church, we are living in one of the greatest moments of opportunity that we have seen possibly since the First Great Awakening. Uh, Since the First Great Awakening, the Great Revival in the 1700s. Um, and, And here's why I think so. We have a confluence of big world viewpoints. One has been the absolute attack on an objective identity, an objective system of self. The the absolute attack on that has brought young men and women. So I'll give this very briefly. I've only got a minute or two. Uh, I've, I've, I've said this to a lot of other people in, in one-on-one context, but I'll say it here publicly. In the 1980s, the fad among disaffected 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old teenage girls was anorexia. And it's horrible. And I don't mean to put it down, and I don't mean to minimize the pain and the, the psychological distress that anorexia causes, but the fact of the matter is you can get over it and eat a freaking cheeseburger and you'll be fine. Then it turned in the 1990s to bulimia. And same thing, I don't mean to undercut the the difficulty, the challenges, but you can have dental procedures uh, in your 30s to restore the, the damage to the teeth from all the stomach acids. Then the fad in the 2000s, early 2000s, became cutting. I don't know if you guys remember cutting, uh, but that was always the thing, and it was 
primarily teenage girls, are slicing up their forearms and their legs and, and, and cutting themselves all over. Well, the fact of the matter is you can get a tattoo. You can, you can cover the thing up. You can have a difficult period. You can come through that period and you can be restored. Transgenderism, there's no coming back from. When you get a double mastectomy at the age of 15, you're not turning the clock back on that one. When you start taking hormone replacement therapy, there's no, oh my goodness, wasn't I a silly teenager at the age of 16. It's you have set yourself on a life-altering decision at the age of 14, 15, 16. And you've done so motivated by dysphoria. Uh, the, the, the purpose of this life-altering decision has been, I'm not comfortable with who I am. I don't like who I am. Now, which one of any rational human beings thinks that that is a responsible course of action to take a 15-year-old young lady who's going through changes in her body, who's going through all of the media stuff of what beauty looks like, and say to her, oh, I agree, you're in the wrong body, let's chop your little budding breasts off and put you on testosterone. You'll be fine. You'll be better then. And, and the answer is no. Any, any sane human being, any responsible, sane human being knows that this is tragic. This is poisonous. This is deadly. And we're permanently damaging young people. Now, follow that to the next step. We are going to be seeing a wave of people saying, this was death. Is there anything else? Is there something else that you've got? Because if this is all it is, I'm killing myself. And we're going to see a wave of suicides, but I believe we're going to see a wave of young people asking, is there something else? Is there something to live for? Because this thing is not. The second thing that is coming together is... We have seen the church go through a winnowing process, and specifically I'm speaking about our response to lockdowns and to the civil magistrates saying that the church should not worship corporately, should not gather for worship. We have seen a winnowing of the church, a sorting of the wheat and the shaft. And I want to be very clear that I respect everybody's positions on this. I've said over and over again, I never took a seminary class on how to respond to a pandemic. And I'm pretty sure nobody else did either. We were all trying to figure this thing out. As the train was rolling down the tracks, we were inventing the wheel. Um, and, and so I'm going to give a lot of grace uh, to people who didn't come down on my end of things, and I'm going to ask for grace from people that I didn't come down on their end of things. But at the very least, I think we can all agree that there are a group of people who said, worship is essential. Worship may cost me my life. Okay. Uh, yes, I understand that the magistrate believes that if I am 
worshiping closer than 10 feet apart with my brother and sister in Jesus Christ, I am being irresponsible and dangerous, so be it. This is important. This is critical. This is essential. I will worship God together with his people. And I think as long as people outside can see that there's something that we will die for, there's something that we will make a stand for, and if they see that this is the only answer to this grotesque pain that they feel, finding your identity not in being skinny or having scars or whatever, finding your identity in Christ. That's where I think Luke chapter 14 is going to be a strong message that you and I can take, Uh, a positive message, an encouraging message, an inviting message to say there is a cost to this. It's going to cost you everything. But let me tell you, it's worth it. Uh, Yes, it will cost you your reputation, It'll cost you relationships. It'll cost it all. But what you gain is life itself. Uh, I think as we are prepared for this message, as we are prepared for this moment in time, I expect to see God do some amazing things in drawing people in. Uh, But I think the more that we are doing our job, which is focusing on what's at the core, then we can look and see what God will do with it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a death cult. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's the Hippocratic oath is quaint and forgotten. First, do no harm. <laughs> that is the first oath that Hippocrates had uh, people do. But anyway, okay. Well, let's uh, stop there and let's go into our fellowship time. Father, uh, as we just scratch the surface of this great challenge, this cost, counting it up and saying we will surrender everything to follow after Jesus Christ, uh, would you help us to do that, to, to be able to lay aside all that we would hold dear, all our pride and all our knowledge and all all our opinions and everything to lay it all aside so that Jesus Christ may be seen, that he may be lifted up, and that he would draw broken men and women unto himself through us. In Christ's name, amen.